who knows what strange shape grace might take when it swallows us up and carries us to places we never dreamed of. Well, it turns out, if you keep reading the Jonah story, grace turns out to be a much more malleable and versatile and varied thing than we could even begin to know. Grace is found in all sorts of fearful and wonderful forms and configurations. Animal, vegetable, mineral, it's luminescent, it's effectual, it's physical, it's massive, and it's minuscule. Like the microbes manufacturing vitamins in your intestines right now, or the plankton which give breath to our fragile biosphere, Grace is the sun which holds us in orbit and the moon to agitate the tides. Grace is stars which died 25 million years ago, only just now sharing the last beams of their light with us. Grace is the earth under our feet. Grace is mystery and beauty And grace is there even when we can't see it, or when we won't see it. This is the stuff of all creation, the ingredients for everything spoken into being by our maker. This is the love of the creator made palpable, invisible, but vital and all around us. Grace is overwhelming, and grace is subtle, all at the same time. The writer of the Jonah story names such shapes and varieties of God's intentions, placing and locating and grounding and animating and vitalizing Jonah and everyone and everything around him in a universe composed entirely of God's miracles. In the voice and breath of God, calling and compelling a prophet for holy purposes. In a crew of salty companions on a boat in a stormy sea. It is in prayers and psalms in the deepest and darkest places. It's in the sheltering belly of a great fish, bringing the prophet to new life. And to Jonah's great surprise, Grace also looks like a bustling city, dusty with commerce and industry, the great center of empire and wealth, the ruler of the known world, the bloody city of the Assyrians, the metropolis of terror, Nineveh, a city which also happened to be built on a geological fault a city made of brick and stones and roads, but populated by mortal creatures. Tyrants walk the streets with their soldiers, but so do regular folk. People just trying to make a go of it, paying rent, managing their bills. Women and men and children and many animals. Last week, before he did his amazing 
and copyright violation, Bob Dylan, slow train coming, TikTok. That was awesome. Ken walked us through the story of a city's salvation. A king and a people and all their animals even, dressed in sackcloth of repentance, covered in the ashes of their grief. A nation who allowed themselves to imagine, even for a moment, the possibility of redemption, even for people like them. This was a reality that Jonah didn't even want to acknowledge. And together, the city wonders, who knows? God may relent and change his mind. Who knows? And as it turned out, the cranky and stubborn and angry prophet wasn't the harbinger of death after all. Jonah was God's instrument of peace. Just as he had suspected all along, he was introducing the people of Nineveh to a mercy and redemption that they had barely allowed themselves to imagine. And they get to see God's outpouring of redemption. As the city of blood and terror becomes a city of prayer and repentance, Nineveh is spared a terrible fate. And make no mistake, this is a shocking outcome. This monstrously terrible and reprehensible Assyrian city of blood is spared? In the beautiful words of the prophet Jonah, God is merciful, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love. I might have mentioned this before, but another bit of literary irony is in this story is that Jonah's name could be translated to mean dove, a living symbol of peace. And that's right, the clue was there under our noses all along. In today's final passage, we play out the aftermath of this gratuitous display of God's kindness and mercy. Dejected and angry, Jonah makes his way to a vantage point east of the city. And there he does a little bit of field carpentry, building a sort of cabana hut for himself, holding on to the perverse Hope that maybe, just maybe, after all of this hassle and all of this trouble, he might at last get to see a display of terrible, holy power. God's wrath and judgment finally poured out on someone who really deserves it. Who knows, thinks Jonah. God could change his mind again. Maybe he'll... Open up that fault in the earth and at last swallow that great city. What a sight that would be. Creative writing teachers might make a note of the fact that there is not much in the way of character development in the story of Jonah. The grumpy and miserable prophet is just as grumpy and miserable at the beginning as he is at the end of the story. Maybe even a little worse, actually. His baptism and his rebirth by whale have 
may have changed his heading and his direction, but they didn't really do much for the disposition of his heart. And even still, God is with Jonah. God appointed from the earth a small mercy, another shape of grace, this time in the form of a shade plant, a little bit of creature comfort for this stomach-bleached and now sun-bleached prophet. Another unexpected iteration of God's patience. And surprise, surprise, Jonah, for once, is positively delighted with this display of holy shrubbery. A miraculous bit of shelter and comfort, protection from the harsh rays of the blistering Assyrian sun. But this is short-lived. And the text tells us, when dawn came the next day, God appointed a worm that attacked the bush so that it withered. And when the sun rose, God prepared a sultry east wind, and the sun beat down on the head of Jonah so he was faint and asked that he might die. He said, it is better for me to die than to live. There's our dramatic character we know again, mourning the loss of his little shrub and once more trying to check out of this whole life thing completely. Kill me now, God. Just get it over with. There's the nihilistic Jonah that we've come to expect. All of this, of course, is on account of God's hungry little worm, nibbling away at Jonah's comfort threatening the prophet's entire view of the world. But like the great fish and the great city, a hungry worm, a wilting shrub, the sultry east wind, the relentless sun, each of these are vehicles of God's kindness. The surprising shape of grace, the flora and the fauna, And the elements are, once again, God's medium and message for a final word on the matter. Affording Jonah a vantage point, a way of seeing, for a moment, a God's eye view of the world. You care for this little plant, do you? And I'll paraphrase here. Are not two little plants like this sold for a penny? Are not you worth more than many shrubberies? And the same goes for all in that great and dirty and bloody city. They're cruel and they're mean and they're stubborn and they can be so stupid and rebellious. I know, I know, believe me, I know. But your view of things is just so small. Pathetic even. Because the same love I have for all of creation spills out over human beings who don't even have a clue. People who make terrible choices and run the wrong way. Missing the point, living in their stubborn ignorance. Even people like you, Jonah. Jonah's grace is a God's eye view of a fragile world. It locates us and places us in the context of all creation, 
reminding us that our enemies are made of the same stuff that we are, the same raw materials that plants and worms and fish and stars are made out of. We are connected in critical and vital and strange and mysterious and beautiful ways. And through it all, we are God's stubborn children. The writer of the Jonah story was well acquainted with human nature. And sadly, the picture of that sunburnt grumbler sulking on the hillside at times is a dangerously accurate image of so many agitated congregations gathered in structures that they've built themselves, watching the world from a distance as though they don't have any part in it. Our grumpy hearts are so greedy, and we hold on to petty grievances and foolish grudges. It's, it's embarrassing, really. A lot of us haven't even figured out how to get along with each other in that benign and petty headspace of social media. Again, it's embarrassing. This is a well-documented human reality. And yet, despite all of these failings, we, the church, are called to a vital and holy work. In a world that can be so dangerous and cruel and stupid and mean, perhaps the most radical anyone can ever radical thing that anyone can ever do in this world is look on the scary and the terrible people in the world with humanity. Or maybe taking it a step further, as today's gospel told us, loving those terrible and scary and stupid and mean people. It's crazy. It's dangerous and difficult and contrary to all of our instincts and so much of our conditioning. It goes against our better judgment and often runs counter to the interests of the very empire which provides our security and demands our loyalty. Friends, we require grace in every shape and configuration we can find as we live out what really is a difficult and beautiful and profound calling. I know well enough at least a good portion of the petty grievances of my own heart, at least the ones I can admit to myself. I'm sure you know yours well enough as well. And there are many times when I watch the global news, and it seems to me like it would be uh, pretty terrific, good and decent, and maybe even entertaining thing, if occasionally the earth would open up and swallow some of the terrible and stupid and monstrous people. But I know that the background pressure of human strife and misery is never that simple. And if I'm really honest with myself, I realize that I am implicated in more ways than I even want to admit. How easy is it for me to become another Jonah on a hilltop somewhere pretending to live at arm's length 
from the world. The thing is, though, every hope we have for healing and reconciliation depends on this radical revisioning of our human enemies and the world we live in. Boy, do we have our work cut out for us. We need imagination. We need courage. I say this with an awkward awareness because I live in the country that's been ranked number one in the world for the standard of living five years in a row now. I enjoy benefits and comforts of empire that have insulated people who look like me. Insulated people who look like me from so much of the strife of the world. Making me numb to it at times. The truth is, I've never had to live in a place like Pyongyang, North Korea. I've never had to live with the Uyghurs in eastern China. I know that there are people who have had to live horrors beyond my imagination, and I can't imagine preaching to them about how they got to be. My prayer is that my Comfort and my compliance might become prayer and repentance, love and action. And friends, my prayer for you is that all of us might have eyes to see some of the surprising and strange and beautiful varieties of grace which surround you, support you, instruct and sustain you, wherever you find yourself. And may each of us learn to listen to that same spirit which conspires to make people like you and me instruments of God's peace in the world. Thanks be to God.